Good morning. We're glad to have you here with us. And if you're visiting, we're very thankful to have you uh, in our midst this morning. We are continuing in our series on in John, the hidden music of John's gospel. And uh, we're still camping out in chapter 8 this morning. So we're going to begin where we left off this last week, which is in John 8:12. <clears throat> so we find Jesus in this section of John. He's teaching again during the Feast of Tabernacles. And the claims that he makes, it puts him into even sharper opposition with the Jewish leadership of that time. So I just wanted to emphasize John 8:12 a little bit more for us and build the scene for us as we uh, enter into our discussion for this morning. So besides building temporary shelters or bivouacs for this Feast of Tabernacles, up on the rooftop, you would get to go sleep or camp out for a week in the fields or in these little shelters that you built. Besides that, they had some important ceremonies that were a part of this festival in the time of Jesus. They had the water ceremony that Jesus alludes to in his discussion of living water. And they also had a, a lamp lighting ceremony that was particularly uh, important in today's text. So during this festival, four huge, four they think, huge oil lamps were lit, stood up and lit in the court of women in the temple there in Jerusalem. And, and in the light of these the Levites, they would play music all night long. It was like an all-night party. And then it says, Men of piety and good works dance through the night, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and shouting praises. And all-night celebration went on every night of the feast. And the light from the temple area lit up the city of Jerusalem surrounding. So the, the idea here was this is also... Uh, as they led up the temple at night, it was also in some ways to signify the ways that God had directed the nation of Israel, that he had been a light for them. So this is a direct allusion to or a remembrance of the Shekinah glory of the Lord that led the nation of Israel through the Exodus, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So this is from Exodus chapter 13. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night, neither the pillar nor the cloud by day, neither the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night left its place from in front of the people from the 13th chapter of Exodus. So light as a metaphor is planted deep in the thoughts and the conscience of the Jewish people of Jesus' day. In fact, uh, as I'm looking at light as a metaphor in the Old Testament, there's just so, man so many verses there that I can only scratch the surface of a few. But uh, Exodus 13, the glory and very presence of God in the cloud led the people to the promised land. This same light protected them from those who would destroy them in Exodus 14. The Israelites were trained to sing, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 27. The word of God, the law of God, is often referred to in 
as a light that guides those who are able to hear these words. Psalm 119, uh, Proverbs 6.23. God's light is shed abroad in Revelation. We see some allusions to this in Ezekiel. And in Habakkuk, that light is our salvation. Psalm 44.3 says light is Yahweh in action. Light is in some way depicts the action of God. Uh, the familiar verses of Isaiah chapter 49. The Lord Jesus, the servant of the Lord, he is a light to the Gentiles. A verse that we read from Matthew's take on that last week. And then uh, particularly important maybe is this prophecy or these words from Zechariah chapter 14. In the last day there will be continual light from uh, pouring out from and living water flowing from Jerusalem. So that's, that's a, maybe a good one to take, to take a look at if you want to. And so especially during this time, in this particular celebration, in the light of these huge lamps that are lit, in, uh, lit up at night in Jerusalem, people are thinking of this metaphor of light. And psalms would be sung throughout the night, and as part of the celebration of this festival, uh, Psalm 118 in particular would be sung. And that's a messianic psalm for us. The stone the builders rejected has become the capestone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. He has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. The psalm was recited and sung as a part of the Feast of Tabernacles. And we hear it again soon in chapter 12 at the triumphal entry. Uh, when crowds carrying palm branches laid those down as Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem and they shouted, Hosanna. Hosanna is a Hebrew expression that means save. Followed by part of Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this environment is electric with anticipation in Jerusalem. There's joy, there's all-night celebration. Light is in people's mind. The way the Lord works as light in their lives. The way his word is a light for our path. And so in this context, Jesus comes and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus has been saying all along, my time has not yet come, and now the time has come for him to begin to reveal himself more fully. And we'll see that more direct revelation of who he is 
in uh, John chapter 8. But when Jesus speaks these words, think of this whole context of the lights every night and the, the throwing of torches. It's a light parade in the ancient world. And then Jesus comes, and in the shadow of the temple and in the, temp- the, the court of the women where those light stamps are, Jesus speaks these words, I am the light of the world. Well, immediately uh, after Jesus speaks these words, it doesn't take long for the Jews to challenge Jesus on this, the Jewish leadership, because they understand what's at stake here. These are the words that will change everything. Human history was forever changed because the Son of God spoke these words and he spoke them in truth. The Pharisees challenged him, here you are appearing as your own witness, your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one, but if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. So the Pharisees are trying to use Jesus' own words against him because in John chapter 5, 31, Jesus said, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. And they don't get it because the whole point of what Jesus is saying is that he does indeed not testify by himself. There is someone who testifies with Jesus and on the behalf of Jesus. In fact, everything Jesus said is, and says is nothing more and nothing less than what God the Father gives him to say. Jesus is confident in his testimony because he does, in fact, know where he comes from. And he does, in fact, know where he is going. And because he knows where he came from and he knows where he's going, he's courageous. And sadly, these Jewish leaders are only willing to judge Jesus by human standards, it says, and are completely closed to the work God is trying to accomplish through Jesus Christ. And the good news for us is that Jesus doesn't judge us by human standards. His judgments are always right because he stands completely in solidarity with God the Father. So Jesus says, in your own law it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. So the question we need to ask ourselves and our, at our place in the hidden music of John's gospel is who gets to testify about who you are and what your purpose is? In your life, if you're stepping out to do kingdom work of any kind, if you're stepping out to make a stand with the Lord, to do work that glorifies God, you're going to encounter resistance, sometimes a lot of resistance. See, the enemy of your soul will work with broken people to say things like, who do you think you are? 
You're nobody special. You're fat. You're ugly. You're old. You're too young. You're not smart enough. You're not a part of our group. You're not rich enough to do anything important. All of these lies come to us or will come to us at one point or another. And the problem is for many of us, these voices of condemnation and these voices of shame are so strong, even in our own mind, in our own heads, that when the voice of condemnation comes, it makes us stumble and it keeps us from realizing our full potential in Jesus Christ. You see, we need the testimony of God the Father communicated to us through the Holy Spirit in order to be truly courageous and not to buy into the lies that come our way and the challenges from full faith in God our Father. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. In classic John style, people are understanding things on just a human level. And the question, where is your father? It may indicate that they're thinking of a human father when Jesus is in fact talking about God himself. And this showdown is taking place in the women's court because we know that that's where the the lamps were for this festival. And it says in the collection where the offerings were put. We also know that they would not have put the offering section in the temple where a place where women couldn't get to it because if they cut off the offerings of women, their whole system would collapse. (laughs) So these are some place where women could access it. So that would be the offering area in the court of women. And once again, we see Jesus' opponents. They're powerless to do anything uh, to harm him physically because the whole series of events that's taking place is unfolding according to God's purpose and God's timeline. And so it says, yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. You see, they still don't get it. Last time Jesus was talking like this, they said, he, uh, Jesus said something like, you won't be able to find me. And they thought that he was talking about going to some far-flung land somewhere, uh, some outpost of the Greeks. Um, and he wasn't, in fact, talking about going some other land. But uh, in the same way, uh, it says uh, a couple verses on, Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away, and you will come to me, look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? And so as as they misunderstood what, what Jesus said earlier in John, again, they misunderstand, and they even use this as an idea or a way to dismiss, dismiss Jesus. And just say, you know, say these things to kind of slander Jesus. uh, To discredit and dismiss Jesus and the claims that he is making because they're so threatened by what Jesus says. 
But Jesus continues on and he said, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. So there's a lot at stake at what's going on here. When Jesus claims to be the light of the world, there's a lot at stake. These Jewish leaders are concerned about their control of the people, their issues of power and influence. They are concerned about that. They're concerned about control of the institution of faith in Israel. They're fearing change. They're fearing not being able to control the resources of the temple and the people. And Jesus basically comes and says, you know what, the stakes are high. In fact, they're a whole lot higher than you realize. Because what you decide about me, it will affect your eternal destiny. A whole lot bigger than the issues that you are thinking of right now. And for you and I as well, in your actions and in your words, what you say about Jesus Christ, what you say in your life and in your words and your actions about Jesus Christ, it is either going to save you or it's going to destroy you. Who are you, they asked. Just what I have been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable, and what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. So now Jesus offers the coming crucifixion as the means that will reveal his true identity. The crucifixion that is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And why is it the crucifixion? Because the crucifixion is the ultimate testimony of Jesus' unwavering trust and faith in God the Father. See, Jesus, he is tenacious. He's not bullied. He does not back down. He is courageous in the face of opposition. And he's unafraid. His wisdom, his courage, his boldness, the hope that he inspired in others, it must have been amazing to witness. Because even as he is speaking, people are putting their faith in him. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Notice who it is that Jesus is addressing now. 
It's these very people who were beginning to put their faith in him. So now Jesus is teaching you and I, and as also those who claim to be his disciples. He's teaching us a lesson about the cost of discipleship, the true cost of what it takes to be free like what he's talking about, the truth that will set you free. Steadfastly holding to the teaching of Jesus over the course of your entire life. That kind of perseverance is the only thing that will prove you as a true disciple of Jesus. And that is the only truth that will be able to set you free. You know, I see this, this phrase, uh, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free on a whole lot of uh, educational institutions. Universities throughout the United States have that up there. And a lot of times they disassociated that from Jesus completely. Uh, like just existential truth is what will set you free. Some, sometimes they even take uh, you shall know off there and just says the truth will set you free. So apparently then you don't even have to know it. It will just be set you free. But no, it's much more specific than that here. The truth that sets free is our faithfulness to the teachings of Jesus Christ. But already these believers show their faith to be shallow and they begin to argue with Jesus. Because they say, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? How dare you, sir, imply that I'm in need of this kind of freedom or whatever. The sadness for them and for so many of us even in this day is that we cannot see all the ways that we are slaves. We can't even perceive all the ways that we are unfree, where we lack freedom. We can't see the places where we are in need of deliverance. You see, you're not a pretty good person who's basically all right and just needs a little sprinkle of Jesus on top. The truth is, you are a sinner and you are a traitor against your God. And you don't need a sprinkle of Jesus. You need to lay down your arms and repent. It's in full surrender that we discover the truth of who Jesus is. It's in full surrender that we discover our own freedom. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. You can't take sonship away. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now Jesus in his goodness, he shows us and he shows them where they are in fact slaves. Our greatest need of freedom comes in regard to our own sinfulness. It's in regard to our own sin. You see, to be a sin is to be a slave of our compulsions, a slave to our bad choices and our bad habits, our need to be in control, our need for power and admiration, 
a slave to what others think of us, a slave to our fear of others. But Jesus, he doesn't just reveal our problem. He also tells us in his goodness that as the Son of God, he has the authority to give us real freedom. He has the power to set us free. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. No room for my word. In the hidden music of John's gospel, the crucial question that each of us needs to ask ourselves is, do you have room for God's word? Do you have room for the word of God in your life? Or do you already have it all figured out? I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If, a- if you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things that Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. These are are harsher words that we are hearing now. So they go on and say, we are not illegitimate children, they protested. And so that didn't work, saying they're Abraham's heirs. So then they go on and say, well, our only father then is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, if God were really your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. Why is my language not clear to you? Those are scary words. Because the Bible is clear and how we should live our life. The teachings of Jesus, they're not eluded. And I mean, we find these fine points of theology that we can argue with. Tell me how you are living your life. Have you learned to surrender? How do you fill a vessel that's already full? You are unable to hear what I say. And these people who have claimed to have faith in Jesus cannot hear his words because of the condition of their heart. So the question we have to ask ourselves are what are the things in your life, what, are the, what is the filth in your own heart that keeps you from hearing Jesus clearly? Because I, I speak truth sometimes from this pulpit. I try to do it all the time. And you hear, I give you suggestions of things to do. Things that we can be working on. 
the importance of prayer, importance of service. Import- Do my words go anywhere? Sometimes they just, you're just used to hearing a preacher up here. And it just kind of bounces off you. And it's almost like you're inoculated against Jesus. You want to know the truth of what I'm saying? Put it into practice in your life. Because you don't come here because you need a few encouraging words from Calvin. You need to come here to learn how to cry out, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's only your humility to be able to say that and your full surrender that's going to save you from the madness and allow your heart to hear the words of Jesus as you continue as his disciple. It's only as you make room for God through your humility that you will be able to accept the words of Jesus Christ. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. That's so politically incorrect, isn't it? Oh my goodness. There was an archangel, Lucifer. His name meant Lord of Light. What is that desire that the devil had? that we are tempted to have ourselves. What is the desire of the devil that we ourselves are tempted to carry out? That desire is to have things my way, on my terms. To live a life pretending that I do not need God for anything. Jesus says, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Think about the Garden of Eden, the temptation of Eve, the fall of Adam and Eve. Just eat this. God said, you will die. No, you won't die. There was a death experience that day. And it's only through Jesus that resurrection came and hope for humanity. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. So what is the truth that sets us free? What is the truth that the devil does not have? The truth that sets us free is realizing you are not the center of the world. You don't control your life the way you think you do. That's a hard lesson for a lot of us to learn. But the good news is you don't have to as well. Instead, we humbly receive and welcome something that is bigger than my own personal wishes and desires. 
We cannot find the truth that sets us free until we choose to let go of some of the illusions of life that we still may have. This means that we have to allow ourselves to be challenged by Jesus and by others, to speak the hard words that we don't necessarily want to hear, to discern if there is truth in them or not. The truth then is not something that makes us feel superior. On the contrary, it calls us into humility, to littleness, and to the light of love. The truth that will make you free is a voice that comes out of the depth of your souls that cries out, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, save me, please. Jesus, I can't do this on my own. That voice, listening to that voice, speaking those words, it'll set you free. But instead, these Jews confronting Jesus, they choose a path of pride. Something we've all done. We all continue to do. And so now they just begin to hurl insults at Jesus. Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus. But I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? That is, of course, the question. Do you think you're someone greater than than Abraham. They thought they knew the answer to that question. But the irony is, Jesus was in fact someone greater than Abraham. But they don't have the humility to even consider that as a possibility because there is no room for his word in their hearts. Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, who you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not even 50 years old. The Jews said to him, And you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. And so Jesus reveals his divinity fully and takes us back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, among other places says these words, 
Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. It all comes down to Jesus. Jean Vanier says, Jesus shows us two paths that are open to us. We can follow I am, seeking to live in the truth, be fully alive, and give life to others. Or we can follow our own anguish, hide in ourselves and in, our, in the darkness of our being and in our group. We can sow life or death. Jesus Christ, by claiming the title, I am, forces us to make a choice. The same way that God gave a choice in Deuteronomy 30, 19, when he says, I have set before you life or death, blessing or curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live. Choose life. They don't have room. They don't have room to hear it. We live in a, in a world full of people that don't have room to entertain the possibility that Jesus Christ really is who he said he was. Don't have room for it. And that choice has consequences. Well, they understood exactly what's at stake. And because they cannot accept Jesus, they cannot allow someone to say these things. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. In reference to this verse, some centuries later, theologian and church father Augustine said, Man, Jesus, flees from the stones, but woe to those whose heart of stone God flees. That's a troubling place to be. So the conflict is growing. It's a conflict that's unavoidable for you and I as well. What will you do with Jesus? You cannot just be neutral all the way through. You're going to have to make a choice. That choice will have consequences. But the beauty of what Jesus offers us is that he gives us a real possibility for freedom. Freedom and a life of purpose and a life of love. 
Because in Jesus Christ, when the voices come our way, and when people say, who do you think you are? In Jesus Christ, we can answer, I know where I'm coming from, and I know where I'm going. And that will make us powerful. And that power will only come through our humility to accept the Word of God. Our humility to make room for the Word of God to teach us. So whatever needs you have this morning, uh, I don't know where these words strike you or where they find you, um, you have an opportunity, as you always do in this place, to come forward for prayers of this church, to put on the Lord in baptism. We want to know how we can serve you. We want to know how we can walk beside each of you as you learn from the Lord to be his disciple and to discover the truth that will set you free. Let's stand and sing together.